Church family, I invite you to open up in your copy of God's Word to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 14. Our text for today will be chapter 14, verses 17 through 24. The title of our message is Marked by Humble Worship. Marked by Humble Worship. Genesis chapter 14, verses 17 through 24. I'm going to read from God's Word. You follow along in your copy as I read. This is the Word of God. After his return from the defeat of Keterlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything, and the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anner... Eshcol and Mamre take their share. This is the word of the Lord for his church today. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, please open up our hearts and minds to your word today. Lord, help us to think well. Help us to honor you in the way that we think deeply about your word. But Lord, we know it's only through the power of your spirit that we can understand and apply these truths. And so we pray that your spirit would would, uh, press these truths into our hearts today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Our text for today uh, um, is from God's Word. It's really the second half of an event in the life of Abram. We looked at the first half of that event last week. If you'll remember, Abram's nephew Lot um, had chosen to go live in the land of Sodom, and, and he got taken captive, and Abram came in with some of his men, and they, uh, they came and launched a surprise attack and delivered Lot. He rescued Lot from captivity along with um, all the other people who have been taken captive and all their stuff. Abram went to battle, and Abram emerged the victor. But this account from the life of Abram isn't over. The battle is over. Lot has been rescued. But now the question becomes, what does Abram get for winning the battle? I mean, to whom belongs the spoils of victory? Who receives the honor for defeating the enemy? This is a great victory that he has just won. And so this being really the second part of, of the passage that we studied last week, the first part of chapter 14, I want to keep the main ideas um, that we had last week the same for this week. Okay, I think chapter 14 is teaching us this in two different parts. And it's teaching us, church, that as we seek to imitate the great faith of Abram, we must confess our great need for Jesus. We want to see another way today that we, that, we, that we do that, that we imitate the faith of Abram, but another way that we see our great need for Jesus Christ. Now remember, as we think about Abram being a, a man of faith, I was talking to somebody about this this week, um, we have to remember that Abram is not a perfect man. We don't want to exalt Abram as, as somebody other than what he is, and that is a real man who really sinned, and he wasn't perfect. And yet, the Bible points us to certain aspects of his life by God's grace where he showed faith in the Lord. And we can look at those examples of faith as examples for ourselves, examples that we would want to imitate. 
But at the same time, we realize that these stories from the Old Testament are not just given as examples for us to follow, but they point us to Jesus. They point us to the one who can meet our greatest need. Abram can't meet our greatest need, but Jesus can. And so we also want to see Christ and see how this passage points us to Jesus. And today's passage actually points us to our Savior, our Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, in a very, very unique way. It takes a little bit of thought. It takes some, some, uh, some effort on our part to think well, um, to see it. But it is really, really neat if we will um, if we'll commit ourselves to wanting to see what God's Word says to us today. I want to see one mark of faith displayed in the life of Abram, which we should imitate, and one way that Jesus, uh, this text points us to Jesus as the the one who meets the greatest need in our lives. So let's dive in. Let's dive into this uh, really interesting uh, follow-up passage to what we studied last week. So verse 17 tells us that Abram returned from the defeat of Keterlaomer and the kings who were with him. We talked about all that last week. Go back and read chapter 14 if you're unfamiliar with that story. Really, really neat story. Um, So Abram Abram comes back the victor, and when he returns, two men come out to meet him. The first is a man named uh, who is a man who is the king of Sodom. And uh, if we just kind of think back to what we already know about Sodom, we know that Sodom is a city that's full of great sinners, which means that we can probably assume, be safe to assume, that this is not a good king. He's probably a wicked king if the city that he reigns over is known as a city of great sinners. And so Abram's going to need to be on his spiritual guard against this man, um, this king of Sodom. And we'll get back to Sodom, the king of Sodom, in just a moment. But then we have this other man that shows up on the scene, and his name is Melchizedek. His name is Melchizedek. Just a Quick few little thoughts that we'll come back to later about Melchizedek. His name means king of righteousness. The text tells us there that Melchizedek is king of Salem, which is probably referring to a city that we would know now as Jerusalem, which was in the land of Canaan where Abraham was living. Now, Salem, he's the king of Salem. Salem also sounds like the Hebrew word for peace which is the word Hebrew word shalom. And so we kind of want to have those things in the back of our minds. There's some clues that maybe there's a little bit more going on with this Melchizedek man than first meets the eye. Now, Melchizedek, um, he's the king of Salem, but he was not a part of all those events that happened back in chapter 14. He wasn't a part of the, uh, or the first part of 14. He wasn't a part of the five-king alliance. Um, he wasn't a part of the four-king alliance. He, this is the first time we see him, and actually it's the last time we hear about this man named Melchizedek, um, at least in the book of Genesis. Last time we hear about him, he's here and then he's not. And that's actually an important point we'll, again, come back to. We're just kind of getting the story right now. Now, the text also tells us that he wasn't just a king, he was also a priest. He was a king, king of Salem, but it also says that he was priest of God Most High. Which means, what does a priest do? A priest intercedes between God and man. We're sinners. We can't just walk into the presence of God. And so God had established that there could be priests who would intercede between God and man. Here's what that means. He led people to worship the one true God. So that's what Melchizedek did. As, as king priest, as his role as priest, he led people to worship the one true God. Now, what does he do when he meets Abram? Well, first he brings out bread and wine, which means that he probably is going to host this a victory feast for Abram and, and the men who were with Abram who had just won the battle. And then he blesses Abram. We want to look at this blessing for just a moment. He says, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And so, so in blessing Abram, Melchizedek acknowledges that Abram won, that Abram was the victor. He came out on top. 
But then I want you to notice that Melchizedek very quickly redirects the attention to God. He, he, one statement about blessing to Abram, and then the rest of the focus is put on God. He calls God, not Abram, the Most High. He points to God as the one who is worthy of worship by announcing that God, not Abram, is possessor of heaven and earth. And then he moves immediately from blessing Abram to blessing God. You see there in the text, he says, blessed be God, Most High. And then he credits God, not Abram, as the reason for Abram's victory by saying that God has delivered your enemies into your hand. I want you to imagine that you're Abram for just a moment. You just marched your men into battle. You just defeated an enemy that, as we talked about in the first part of chapter 14, appeared in every way to be the stronger, uh, the stronger army. And you just defeated them. You just rescued people and recovered all their stolen property. And then this priest king shows up, kind of pats you on the back for just a second, and then says, you didn't actually do it, though. God's the one who did it. He shows up for a minute, kind of says, hey, good job, Abram. And then he says, but God is the greatest. God is the highest. God is the reason for your victory today. Abram's got a choice. If we were in his shoes, we would have a choice as well, because there would be a temptation that would arise at that moment. And the temptation would be, wait a second. Uh, why, why, aren't we, why aren't we chanting, Abram, Abram, Abram? Why, why are we all of a sudden now talking about God? Abram can try to shift the focus back to himself, or he can worship the one true God. He, 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 can, he can say, I think this party, this celebration ought to be about me. Or he can say, yeah, you're right. You need to look to God. Everyone needs to look to God. God is the most high. God is the one who owns heaven and earth. God is really the one who defeated my enemy. God gets all the glory. Now, what choice does Abram make? The text tells us in two ways that Abram, walking by faith, chooses to humbly worship God. Church, a life of faithfulness to God will be marked by humble worship. A life of faithfulness to God will be marked by humble worship. That's the, that's the thing in Abram's life that we want to seek to imitate. Humble worship. This example Abram sets for us is something that should characterize our lives as well. This humble worship, redirecting all the attention to God. I said there's two ways we see this in the passage. The first is seen at the end of verse 20. You'll glance down at the end of verse 20 when Melchizedek announces that, hey, God's the one who is ultimately responsible. God's the one who really gets the glory for the victory that has taken place today. What does Abram do? He gives Melchizedek a tenth of everything. Now, remember, Abram has not just rescued Lot and the people. He's also collected all of the all of the possessions that that army had stolen. And so he's in possession of a lot of a lot of stuff right now. He's loaded down with the spoils of victory. But as soon as this priest king directs everyone's attention to God, Abram takes a tenth of it and he hands it, just hands it right over to Melchizedek. What was he doing? It wasn't really just a gift for Melchizedek. That was symbolic of a gift to God. Abram is acknowledging in giving of what God has now given him through the victory that God's the one who did it. That's an act of worship. On Abram's part. And then the second way that we see Abram being marked by humble worship here gets us back to the king of Sodom. Where we mentioned just a mention ago, uh, mentioned 
me say that again. We mentioned just a minute ago. There we go. Uh, that, uh, that it's not just Melchizedek that's here, but the king of Sodom is, is here. Now he shows back up in, in, our, in our account. Um, and, and remember we said that the king of Sodom, probably not the guy that we want to look to uh, as an example to imitate. And that's exactly what we see. In fact, what we see is that the king of Sodom shows no interest in worshiping God. It's like he doesn't even hear what Melchizedek has said. All the king of Sodom is worried about is who gets what when it comes to all this stuff. I, I, I know this is a little bit of my imagination, but I can, I can kind of imagine that he was, he was already sweating a little bit when he saw Abram go, go ahead and grab a tenth of the stuff and hand it over to Melchizedek. And he jumps in. He's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Before he starts giving away all this stuff, we've got to figure out who gets what. That's where he's coming from. And so, so look at verse 22. Excuse me, verse 21. The king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. Now, that seems like a pretty fair transaction for Abram, right? He gets to keep all the stuff. Now, he's already given a tenth of it over to Melchizedek. But the king of Sodom says, you keep all the rest of the stuff. But what Abram says next reveals a humble heart of worship that comes from a heart of faith. It's, it's a heart that's more interested in trusting God with the future than gaining wealth by making a deal with a wicked king that would then put him in the future in some sort of indebtedness to this wicked king. Look at verse 22. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, all right, he's just been offered all this stuff. And Abram says, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Notice that he says exactly what Melchizedek said. He agrees with Melchizedek about who God is. So what is he vowed? That I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eskol, and Mamre take their share. So basically, Abram says, look, my trained men can take what they deserve from the battle. Let the three brothers who are my allies, let them take their fair share. But I am not going to take anything because apparently Abram had made a vow to the Lord. He said, I've lifted my hand to the Lord most high that I wouldn't take anything. So Abram is going to keep his word before the Lord. Now, what does that mean? It not only validates what we said last week, that Abram was motivated by love for Lot when he went to rescue him. He wasn't motivated by Oh, if I go rescue him, I'm going to get all this stuff. He was, he was motivated by love. But as we look at the passage this week, it also reveals to us that Abram's focus on God in this, uh, focus in this moment is on God. He, it could be very easy to turn the focus on himself. He's just won this great battle. But he humbles himself before God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. Abram makes a choice based on a humble heart of worship. Church, we will be confronted with similar choices in our lives. We are confronted with similar choices in our lives. We'll be confronted with a choice to focus attention on ourselves or to turn the attention to God. We'll be, we'll be uh, confronted with the choice to give, give credit to ourselves, to say, yeah, look at what I did, or to give all the credit for the good things that God does in and through us back to God. We'll be confronted with the choice to keep our word before God or to go back on our word before the Lord. We'll be confronted with the choice to sacrifice our character in order to make ourselves look great in the eyes of others. Or, or we can choose to live with godly character by refusing to, our ta- to attach ourselves to the wickedness of this world. Which is what would have happened if Abram would have t- taken those goods from the wicked king of Sodom. And then we can simply trust God with the results. And listen, all of those are choices of worship. Now, they're not choices of whether or not to worship. 
They're choices of who or what we will worship. We're always worshiping someone or something. The question is who or what are we worshiping the choices that we make. Four times in this passage, God is referred to as the Most High. Two times in this passage, God is referred to as the possessor of heaven and earth. Friends, there is only one who is worthy of our allegiance. There is only one who is worthy of our affection, our devotion. There's only one who is worthy of our worship. And Abram set an example in this instance in his life. He set an example for us to follow that a life of faithfulness to God will be marked by humble worship. But this passage doesn't just provide us with a a good example to follow. This passage points us to a need in our lives that only Jesus can meet. And in a very, very unique way, as I said earlier, this passage points us to the one who can meet that need, Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not sure how much Abram understood about this person, Melchizedek. We don't maybe have all the details that our curious minds would like to know. But because of all of God's word, we know this priest king, Melchizedek, was pointing to an even greater priest king who was yet to come. His name would be Jesus. And he would be what Melchizedek's name meant, the king of righteousness. And he would reign as king, not merely over one city, Jerusalem, but over the entire world. And he would usher in a peace. And it would be a peace that would last forever and ever and ever. And he would be a priest. And he would be a priest who would intercede between us and God in the greatest way that any priest ever ever had and ever would, in a way that actually reconciled lost sinners to God as our Father. So the second truth I want to share with you is this, church. Only Jesus meets our need for an eternal priest king who can make us acceptable worshipers of God. Only Jesus meets our need for an eternal priest king who can make us acceptable worshipers of God. Now, we're going to dive a little bit into Melchizedek today, okay? And uh, and he's an interesting figure. But if if we'll turn our minds on and love the Lord our God with all of our mind heart, soul, and strength. Remember, we love the Lord our God with all of our mind. One of the ways we do that is by being willing to think deeply about God's word. I think we're going to just come away, hopefully worshiping the Lord um, more than we ever have at his great sovereignty, his plan, and and how great Jesus is, and how God weaves into this story uh, 4,000 years before Jesus ever came some great clues about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's various views concerning who this Melchizedek figure is. I think the testimony of Scripture is that he was just what the text tells us here. He was a man who was a priest and king of Salem who worshipped the one true God. And in God's sovereign plan, God used this man to teach us things about the coming Messiah, the coming king, the coming priest, so that we would recognize him when he arrived and we could make sense of him. Now, we don't hear anything else about Melchizedek until we get to the book of Psalms. About a thousand years later, after this event happens, King David writes Psalm chapter 110. And this psalm is a prophecy about the Messiah King, the coming King, the promised deliverer. And in the middle of that psalm, in Psalm chapter 110, we find these words. You, speaking about the coming Messiah King, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so Psalm 110 tells us that the coming Messiah King would also be a priest. He's going to be a priest king. Sounds a lot like Melchizedek. And he would be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. So then Jesus shows up on the scene and he quotes from Psalm chapter 110, the first verse. 
as evidence that he is the promised Messiah King. He, he quotes from Psalm chapter 110, verse 1, so that the people would know, I am that king that David was prophesying about. What does that imply? He's also then saying, I am the promised priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I am that one that God promised. And then we get to the book of Hebrews. We get to the book of Hebrews. And if you would like, um, I would encourage you to turn to Hebrews chapter 7, uh, because we're going to spend... Uh, the rest of our time, uh, pretty much in Hebrews chapter 7. I'm going to mention one verse from chapter 5, one from chapter 6, and then we're going to spend a little bit of time in chapter 7. Because when we get to Hebrews, that's where God has chosen to, to reveal a whole lot more about this connection between Melchizedek, this priest king of Salem, and all the way back in Genesis 14, and Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. In chapter 5, we're told that Jesus meets the requirement of being a priest and that he was appointed by God rather than self-appointed. And not surprisingly, Psalm chapter 110, verse 4 is the verse used, uh, one of those verses used to tell us that he was appointed by God. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's Hebrews chapter 5, verse 6. Then at the very end of chapter 6, the last verse, we're told once again that Jesus has become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then chapter 7, the author of Hebrews launches in to this very deep and yet very incredible and awesome explanation of the connection between Melchizedek and Jesus. Now the main point the author of Hebrews is making is that Jesus is a better priest than all the other priests who had come before. And Melchizedek helps us to see this very important truth, that Jesus is the better high priest. Now, Melchizedek points us to Jesus in two basic ways, right? I've poured over this passage um, as, much as, I, as much as I can to try to help us understand it in as simple uh, of a way as I, as I can try to comprehend as I am learning along with you about the connections between Melchizedek and Jesus. But I think Melchizedek points us to Jesus in two basic ways, his kingship and his priesthood. Well, that makes sense because that's exactly what the text of Genesis told us about Melchizedek. He was the king and he was a priest. Well, let's look at his kingship first. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1 through 2 says this. For Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, talking about Melchizedek, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. So here's the first way that Melchizedek points us to Jesus. It's his kingship. And we see that kingship connection in two ways. His name and the city where he is king of. Let's think about his name. Melchizedek's name, as I said, means king of righteousness. It's literally the two words for king and righteousness in the Hebrew language put together. Melech is the Hebrew word for king. Tzedek is the Hebrew word for righteous or righteousness. And so put those two together. Um, his name is king righteousness or king righteous. That's uh, Melchizedek's name. Now, as we look at the whole testimony of Scripture, we realize and understand that Jesus is the ultimate king of righteousness. He's fully God. He's perfectly righteous, and through his incarnation, his life, his death, his resurrection, he has fulfilled all righteousness. He has become God's appointed king. He is the righteous one. But not just by his name do we see a kingship connection, but also his city. The city of which Melchizedek has, is king has a very clear allusion to peace. 
Remember, Salem sounds a whole lot like shalom, which is the Hebrew word for peace. Well, let's think about Jesus for just a moment. What's one of the names given, to, uh, given of Jesus? Book of Isaiah. We often read this at Christmas time, right? Prince of peace, right? Prince of peace. Jesus made a way for sinners to be at peace with God and with one another through his death on the cross. And ultimately, Jesus is going to usher in a, a kingdom of peace. When he finally destroys his enemies and establishes the new heaven and the new earth. And so we see this kingship connection. The, the kingship of Melchizedek points us to Jesus, the, the ultimate forever king, the son of God. But then we also have his priesthood, his priesthood. And this is where it gets a little more um, interesting uh, perhaps a little bit harder to follow, um, but if we're careful, uh, we can follow the argument that the, the um, author of Hebrews is making. So kingship is the way that Melchizedek points us to Jesus, and then secondly, priesthood. Priesthood. I think we see in chapter 7, Melchizedek's priesthood uh, point us to Jesus in two ways. And I'm going to share those with you, and then we see the result of that. So Melchizedek points us to the priesthood of Jesus in two ways, and then we get the result of that, which is where the, the, the author of Hebrews is trying to get Christians to this point, uh, where we will trust in Jesus as our great high priest. And so I, I'm going to let me go ahead and give you these two, and we'll, then we'll talk about them in turn. So like Melchizedek, Jesus' priesthood has a better duration, and like Melchizedek, Jesus' priesthood belongs to a better order. Those are the two ways that we see this priesthood connection, a better duration, we'll talk about that, and a better order, we'll talk about that as well. And then I'll give you the, the kind of final statement of what those two lead to, those two statements. All right, so Hebrews chapter 7, um, first like Melchizedek, Jesus' priesthood has a better duration. What I mean by duration is length of time, how long this priesthood is going to last. For most priests, the priesthood lasts until that priest dies, but it can't last forever because that priest is ultimately going to die. Except in the case of Jesus, because Jesus rose up from the dead, which means his priesthood can continue forever. So where's the Melchizedek connection there? Well, the, the author of Hebrews, ultimately being God, makes this interesting connection. He points us back to the fact that we don't have any information about where, where Melchizedek came from, and we don't have any information about what happened to him after this. He's just there, and then he's not. And the point is, that's, that makes it seem like Melchizedek just lasts forever, that he has no beginning or end. Now, he's just a man. He definitely had a beginning or end. But the way that it's written, the way that it's presented to us in Genesis chapter 14, makes it seem as though he has no beginning or end, because it doesn't tell us anything about his birth or his family genealogy or, or his death or anything. And so in that way, it's pointing us to Jesus, who truly is a forever priest. Look at Hebrews chapter 7, verse 3. He, that's talking about Melchizedek, is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. And then if we want to look at Jesus, if you skip all the way ahead to chapter 7, verse 23 through 24, text says of Jesus, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, talking about Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. 
There's so much more we could say about that. But one of the priesthood connections between Melchizedek and, and Jesus is that it points to the eternality, the, the foreverness of the priesthood of Jesus. And then second, like Melchizedek, Jesus' priesthood points us to, or Jesus' priesthood belongs us to a better order, which points us to Jesus. The priesthood of Jesus belongs to a better order like Melchizedek. You got your thinking caps on? You ready? You ready to do this? You ready to dig into God's word? It's fun. It, makes our, it might make our minds hurt, but it makes them hurt for the glory of God. All right? Let's love the Lord our God with our minds here. Now, I want you to remember the Old Testament law, okay? It designated the tribe of Levi as the priestly tribe in Israel. Now, not everyone who came from the tribe of Levi was a priest, but all the priests did come from the tribe of Levi. Levi. So whenever you hear me say Levi or you read in, in Hebrews 7, Levi, um, I want you to think priests. These are the priests of Israel. And you can also interchange Levi with Aaron because Aaron was the specific descendant from Levi who became the first high priest in Israel. All right. This is why it's important that we study and read the Old Testament. Um, so you hear Levi, you, you hear Aaron think these are the priests of Israel. All the way from the time the Israelites came out of the land of Egypt until Jesus showed up on the scene, all the priests were descended from Aaron, from Levi, who was the great grandson of Abram. All right. You're following that? The writer of Hebrews is making the case that Jesus is better than all of those other priests. But the problem is that Jesus is not descended from the tribe of Levi. In, in, in the Jewish mind here, something's not right. How can Jesus not only be the better priest, how can he be a priest at all? He's not from the tribe of Levi. His family lineage doesn't allow him to be a priest. He's actually from the tribe of Judah, not Levi. So how can Jesus be God's priest? Well, this is where Melchizedek helps us out. This is where Melchizedek comes into view. The writer of Hebrews makes the case that before the priestly order of Aaron or Levi began, there was another priestly order. And that was the order of Melchizedek, the priestly order of Melchizedek. So even though Jesus was not descended from Levi, he could still be a priest if he belonged to a priestly order called that by God. God calls the order of Melchizedek a legitimate order of priests. And he calls, God calls Jesus a priest after the order of Melchizedek. That takes us right back to the Psalm chapter 110 verse that I, I read earlier, and it's already been quoted here in the book of Hebrews. But Jesus didn't just belong to a different order. The point being made is that he belonged to the better order. He belonged to the better order. And one way that we see that the order of Melchizedek, you ready for this? This is awesome. That the order of Melchizedek is better, a better order than that of Aaron or Levi is in the fact that, we're going to jump right back to Genesis 14, Abram paid tithes to Melchizedek. That's actually a very, very important point in the story of Genesis 14, not just to show us that Abram was acting in humble worship, but to point us to our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, what in the world does Abram paying tithe to Melchizedek have to do with Jesus being our great high priest? Again, we need to know a little background. Not only were the Levites the designated priests in Israel, all the other Israelites, all the other tribes were to pay their tithes to the Levites. The Levites were the ones who were to receive the tithe all the other Israelites were to pay the tithe or give the tithe to the tribe of Levi. And that would help people remember, hey, these, the tribe of Levi, these are the, the priests that God has appointed. 
here's the connection. You've got you to hang on. You ready? This is where God's word just blows our minds. The writer of Hebrews is arguing that because Abram paid tithes to Melchizedek and because Levi, who is the ancestor of Aaron, was Abram's great-grandson, it was as if Levi was paying the tithes through his great-grandfather, Abram, to Melchizedek. Say, so, is God just trying to confuse us here or what? No, there, there, there's an incredible point. It was as if Levi was paying tithes to Melchizedek. Just listen to the text, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 4 through 10, and then we'll make the connection. Notice what God's word says. See how great this man was, talking about Melchizedek, to whom Abram, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi, who received the priestly office, have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people. That is from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, talking about Melchizedek, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say, here you go, one might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he, that's Levi, was still in the loins of his ancestor, Abram, when Melchizedek met him. We've got to put our, our, ourselves in the shoes of the Jews for a moment. They, this, this wasn't right to them to make this connection. How in the world could Levi be paying tithes to someone outside of the tribe of Levi? Because the tribe of Levi was the one who was supposed to receive the tithes. What does that tell us? It tells us that whoever Levi, through his great-grandfather Abram, was paying the tithes to, whoever that was, was better. Was better. That's, that's the point being made. And when Abram paid those tithes to Melchizedek, many, many, many years later, God was going to say, and you know what that means? What that meant? That, that Melchizedek was greater than Abram. And, and, because Levi, through Abram, is paying these tithes. You say, well, what in the world does that have to to do with Jesus? Well, it means that there's a better order of priests than the order of the Levites. And Jesus, not belonging to the order of the Levites, belongs to the better order, the order of Melchizedek. Which means not only is he a legitimate priest, Jesus is a better priest than all the other priests who had gone before. Jesus' priesthood had a better duration, lasts forever, It came from a better, belonged to a better order, a better order than the tribe of Levi. And therefore, here's that last statement I want to give you. Therefore, because of those two connections to the priesthood of Melchizedek, Jesus mediates a better covenant. So you may still be thinking, well, okay, well, great. He belonged to the order of Melchizedek. Again, why does that matter? Here's why. Because he was able then to mediate for us a better covenant. Again, we have to go back and, and, and think about what the, the covenant that the Levites were under. They were mediating a covenant of law. They were mediating a covenant of law. And what that means is that it didn't, it didn't work. They were mediating, mediating a covenant that could not fix our problem. It could not reconcile us to God. The covenant of law was all about works. And the only way we could be right before God 
through the law is if we obeyed it perfectly. But we don't. We all break the law. And so the covenant of law that all of those Levitical priests had been mediating for centuries and centuries, it fell short. It could not do for us what we needed to be done for us. We needed to be reconciled back to God. But the law can't do that because we can't be good enough to earn our acceptance before God. But when Jesus came, not as a Levitical priest, but as a priest after the order of Melchizedek, he was able to mediate a different covenant. He wasn't mediating the covenant of the law. He was mediating what the Bible calls a new covenant. He was mediating for us, church, the covenant of grace, which means we were going to get something that we didn't deserve. We deserve God's wrath because of our sin. But if Jesus can mediate a better covenant for us, then we can actually be rescued from our sin. And because he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek and not after the order of the Levites, he can mediate for us a better covenant. That's exactly what he did. That's exactly what he does. He mediates the new covenant, which is the covenant of grace. It's a covenant in which Jesus, the perfect priest, offers himself as the perfect sacrifice for sinners. And so he's able to mediate between us and God in such a way that we now, though we have sinned, can have our sins cleansed before God. And we can, we can inherit his righteousness. We can be clothed with his righteousness, having our sins once and for all washed away. And what that means for us is now we, sinners, who should be rejected by God forever, can draw near. We see that, that phrase many times in the book of Hebrews. We can draw near an acceptable worship to God. I would encourage you to read um, chapter 7, verse 11 through 22, which explains what I just sought to explain to you. I want to, and, and notice if you scan down, you'll see thoughts, uh, words about um, the, the order of Aaron and the Levitical law. And then you get to verse 17. He says again, talks about Melchizedek, you're a priest forever after the, Lord, um, after the order of Melchizedek. You get to verse 21. He says the same thing. Again, you're a priest forever. And then notice verse 22, kind of the summary of all of this. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. And let's not forget about the better duration because Jesus' priesthood has a better duration because it continues forever. Jesus is able to mediate this better covenant for us forever and ever and ever, which means that everyone who draws near to God through faith in Jesus as our great high priest have our sins forgiven forever. We're counted righteous forever. And we get the privilege of humbly worshiping God forever and ever and ever. Jesus mediates an eternal covenant of grace friends that is the good news that we need and that our world needs I'll summarize this as plainly as i know how only jesus meets our need of an eternal priest priest king who can make us acceptable worshipers of god maybe maybe you you, you you're asking a more foundational question today why do I need to be made an acceptable worshiper of God? Friend, I want you to listen very closely. Because if you are not made an acceptable worshiper by God's grace through faith in Jesus, then you will never be accepted by God as a worshiper of him. And if you are not accepted by God as a worshiper of him, then you will experience 
God's wrath forever and ever and ever. Because to not be a worshiper of God that God accepts is to be an enemy of the most high God, possessor of heaven and earth. Friend, there's nothing that you and I can do to get ourselves out of the state of sin that separates us from God. That's why we need a great high priest, not the Levitical priests who, who, who just told us what the law was. But we need Jesus who offers himself in our place. That's exactly what Christ has done. He is our only hope of being rescued. He is our only hope of being reconciled back into a right relationship with God. If we want to be not enemies of God, but accepted worshipers of God, then we need Jesus Christ. Now, the thing is, Jesus has already done everything that's necessary. We don't have to add anything to what he has done. When he died on the cross, he paid for our sin and he paid for it in full. And so it's a gift to us. We don't earn it. We receive it, and we receive it by placing our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, like Melchizedek led Abram to worship God, Jesus leads us to worship God. But Jesus is far greater than Melchizedek. He doesn't just lead us to worship, or to worship God. Jesus transforms our hearts so that we can worship God. Now, in our lives, each and every day, and forever and ever and ever. In the words of the Apostle John, he said this, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. That's a mediator with the Father. Who is it? John says, Jesus Christ, the righteous, the righteous King, who is also our priest. Christian, a life of faithfulness will be marked by humble worship of the one true God. And the only way we can humbly worship God is through Jesus advocating for us, mediating between us and God with his own blood that he shed on the cross. Have you believed in this great high priest? This is God's plan from the beginning. We see how it all ties together. This is God's plan that our greatest need would be met in Jesus. Have you believed in him? And then are you, am I, are we humbly worshiping God in every area of our lives? Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. I pray that we have loved you with our minds today. As we've tried to think about this in the way that you have given it to us to think about. I pray that we would also love you with our heart, our soul, our strength. God, that we would submit ourselves to the truth of your word. And God, if you're calling someone today to believe in Jesus for salvation, I pray that even right now they would call out to you in their hearts and ask you to save them, not because of any good that's in them, but because of the great work that our great high priest has done, the Lord Jesus Christ, when he died for our sins and rose up from the grave. And God, would you convict all of our hearts of areas in our life where we're not living in humble worship of you. We're not giving you the glory. We're not giving you the credit. We're not choosing to, to obey your word. We're not worshiping you in that area of our lives. Lord, help us confess that to you. Rest in your forgiveness. And Lord, by your strength and by your power, the Holy Spirit in us. Father, may we choose to live in humble worship each and every day. Because of Jesus, our great high priest. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.